We are live from the Empire of Lies, a bastion of free speech, open debate, and barbecue in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. This is the backstory. So, Rod, you understand why I had that intro, right? Being a bastion of barbecue? Yes. <laughs> yes, because we have a big show. Rod was able to get our friend Meathead Goldwyn, author of the book Meathead. You can find it wherever books are sold or Amazon. But I've seen it at the bookstore, at my local bookstore, Rod. So I've seen it in real bookstores, you know, Barnes & Noble or whatever. He's, he's a real author with real books. And he's in the first hour, Meathead Goldwyn, telling you how to make amazing ribs in preparation for your 4th of July weekend. Then in the second hour, we're very pleased to have a first time guest, but you said you know from Twitter, as I do, right, Rod? Yeah, I believe it's Comrade Misty, right? Yes, Comrade Misty. Misty Winston's joining us in the second hour, and we're talking politics and possibly some Fourth of July vacation plans. And all throughout the show, we're taking your calls. 202-521-1320. Rod, do you know the name of the show? Yeah, you're listening to The Backstory. I like to let Rod get in on the gravitas of saying the name and hearing the boom. Sorry, the, the, the mute button wasn't working. Or it was. It was working too well, some might argue. I see what you're saying. So I'm going to talk about, you, you notice one of the topics of the backstory, stuff that we're trying to get to between our guests and our callers, is I'm trying to figure out what the hell's going on in the world. Have you noticed that, Rod? Uh, yeah, 100% Lee, and uh, I think uh, our, ca- our callers as well, you know, and uh, people have their opinions, but I think we're all kind of getting the same, getting to the same, uh, come to the same conclusion. Yes, and everybody knows, and we had a great discussion yesterday with Manila Chan about how a lot of parts of the world seem fundamentally different than a couple of years ago. You know what I'm getting at here, Rod? Yeah, Nightmare. Yeah, for sure, Lee. Um, you know, I'm first generation American, so I, I, you know, have a different outlook a little bit. Um, and when, you know, when I look at when I was younger compared to now, you know, that's just, you know, I can't look past that, you know, because um, I don't have any family roots here. But it's completely different, and it's, uh, you know, that's why when you have, you know, we talk about immig- illegal immigration, people come in here. I've spoken to people who are illegals here, and they said this is not what we expected, and. We are disappointed. So, and imagine people, generations living here in America. Now, so I've got a full philosophy idea, a, a philosophical idea that I actually think is behind a lot of this. And it's a new vein of research for me. And I've just started on it. But I'll talk about that philosophical idea that might be, I might have figured out part of what's behind how screwed up everything is. That's what I'm getting at, Rod a new idea that I'll lay on you in a second. But first, let me get to a couple of headlines. And one of the headlines relates to it. 
Now, yesterday, I believe, it was the 15th year anniversary of something that was life-changing for the world, everybody on the planet. I think the biggest invention ever in human history had the 15th anniversary yesterday. Do you know what that was, Rod? Was that the iPhone? Bingo, the iPhone. And I've argued before that I think it was the most game-changing invention in the history of humanity. And we don't even know how, how much it's changed everything till the AI wars start. But you see where I'm going if you're a Terminator fan. But uh, 15th year anniversary of the iPhone yesterday. And I really do think it changed everything by changing communication and our ability to get knowledge. Starting 15 years ago, there were cell phones before that, but the iPhone managed to put together a whole bunch of technology in one place. And it's not just the iPhone, but all phones, if you like your Samsung, you can keep your Samsung. But all phones subsequently, the smartphone changed everything. And starting 15 years ago, with the advent of the phone and access to the internet for everybody, you had access to more knowledge than billionaires or kings had 20 years ago. Do you see what I'm saying, Rod? Starting 15 years ago, if you ask a friend of yours, I wonder what the population of Idaho is. Remember back in the day, like 20 years ago, if you didn't know what the, for example, population of Idaho was, you either waited till you got to the library or you found an encyclopedia or, or you just didn't know. You just had no answer. There are so many things that when your friend would say, well, I wonder who invented the, the phonograph. If you didn't have access to a library or encyclopedia immediately, the iPhone changed it because you didn't have to, even have to get back to your computer. You could be out at a bar and just look it up. Do you see what I'm getting at, Rod? Oh, yeah, no, no. Uh, you know, I argue because, you know, I was younger then, you know, around high school. And so I kind of lived with it at a different time. I had more free time, unlike yourself, you were working. So, you know, you, you only had so much time to sit around and play with an iPhone. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I agree with you on that. But I say the iPhone, the the product itself, I, uh, the, the, I, I saw from the very beginning what they were doing. And I was disappointed because I was I was buying phones from Japan and, you know, their phones were more advanced than ours. <clears throat> They're like years ahead of us, back, you know, at least back then, because and the iPhone, the iPhone would only take pictures. That's the first one, I believe. And it wouldn't I, take I video. I actually had a phone that took pictures before that. But I think the thing it did was a friend of mine. I mentioned my friend from New Tech, Tim Jennison, the who's who's got a book, uh, a film he's in, directed by Teller from Penn & Teller called Tim's Vermeer. And Tim's an inventor genius guy. He invented the video toaster 
and he's was the president of New Tech, and their big high tech company. Our cameras as a studio are made by New Tech. But Tim told me 30 years ago about the iPhone, but he didn't call it the iPhone. He called it Pocket Trout, and he re realized where chips were going. And he saw you could have a phone that could combine a phone, a camera, right? A video camera would have Wi-Fi access, would have Bluetooth access, so and, and all the technology. And Apple phones have never been the most advanced technically. I think you'd have to use Samsung for that. Do you agree? Or Sony or HTC. Yeah, those, yes. those companies like that. Yeah. Right now, the best phone, I think, hardware-wise, uh, is a Samsung, the new one. I forget what it's called. The S20 Ultra. 22. Right. Yeah. Whatever number is. You know, I'm too old and I've had too many strokes to remember numbers, Rod. But uh, that phone is impressive technically, the hardware, but for ease of use and general user interface, the Apple has had an advantage. And partially because they're limited hardware. The Apple software is meant to run on three or four pieces of specific hardware, whereas the Android phones, the software can run on any number of pieces of hardware. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was getting at, Lee, because uh, it took generations to get video. And I think iPhone still, I'm, I'm not, I've never had an iPhone to like use as a phone, only as an iPad, iPod. But I still, I think they don't, I still don't have a removable memory, right? You can't put an SD card in an iPhone, right? Right, you can't. You, you can't. And they make it kind of hard to put in a memory stick, even though they've got a USB-C port. You can do it, but it's kind of hard. But it, you're exactly right, Rod. That's one difference. And the the phone's camera is generally more advanced, slightly. On the Samsungs, than on the latest iPhone, but that ties into another headline. Believe it or not, they announced today who Joe Biden's going to be giving the Presidential Medal of Honor to. You know the Presidential Medal of Honor. You've heard of that, Rod? They yeah. they put the medal around your neck, and there's 15 people, and sadly. Here's the thing. You're going to be sad about this, Rod. I am not on the list once again. I was gypped. I'll say that blatantly. And some might say racistly. But did you know gypped is, is not a word you're supposed to use? No, I didn't know that. Is it is it because it's close to gypsy or something like that? I don't know. It's a derogatory term for gypsies. If you're gypped, it's like a, a gypsy rip you off. And but Lee, I, I, I'll um, the most one of the most famous boxers in the world is Tyson Fury. He's a he's a great he's a great heavyweight champion. And guess what he calls himself? The Gypsy King. <laughs> there you go. There you go. 
so Romanians won't like it. But uh, it, the, the Presidential Medal of Honor inductees were announced. And if there's an award ceremony, first off, you better believe Vladimir Zelensky is going to try to get there, right? Or be there by uh, by Zoom. He'll just be on the TV watching. Is it is Zelensky in the new Cardi B video that dropped? Oh, I don't know, Lee. I don't. Uh, uh, I don't like Cardi B at all. She's a she's a disgrace to the music industry, in my opinion. But I'll say one thing for Cardi B. She dresses kind of like Kamala Harris used to dress back when she used to hang out with Mattel. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's a fact for sure. That's a fact. Yes. Is hoeware a sexist term to use about Cardi B? Uh, no, I think she would agree with you on that. And then she'd do her little her little cackle laugh. Yes. Also like oh. also like also like Kamala Harris. So there you go. By the way, we we had the, one of the best moments. That was a great moment. We had Ted Rawl on the show the other day, and he looked up the video. I told him about when our vice president, Kamala Harris, walked the red carpet with Montel Williams, and he, he'd never seen the video. And he looked it up during the show on YouTube, and he almost, would you say he gasped? Oh no, that would be the perfect uh, the perfect explanation of what he did. But it was great, him seeing because Kamala Harris. If you've not seen it, stop what you're doing and grab your iPhone or whatever. Look up Kamala Harris, Montel Williams, and find the red carpet video. And Kamala Harris is is that not stunning, Rod? It must be seen to be experienced. You can't just if you if you just hear well I can imagine it you you can't you have to see it <clears throat> yeah I see I see why uh, Willie Brand was interested in her and uh, also you know it's kind of funny that uh, you know that Montel red carpet where Kamala wears Harris is barely wearing anything isn't talked about in the media but they talk about uh, Melania Trump you know in, uh, when she was modeling yes you can remember it. It's because Kamala Harris rhymes with Kamala Barris. You see what I'm saying? She's, <laughs> she's, she's, you will think of Kamala Harris in a way you've never thought of her, but look it up. But I mention this because among the inductees for the Presidential Medal of Freedom is the late Steve Jobs. That's one of the inductees. Did you see that, Rod? I did see that. That's a that's a good pick. I, I agree with that. That's a good pick, and a little too late because he's gone. But okay, fine. And he he had already done big things. Also gone, but not forgotten by the presidential Medal of freedom. Did you see John McCain, straight from hell, will be appearing at that and getting his medal? John McCain. <laughs> Did yeah, that no, warm I don't, the cockles of your heart, Rod? Nah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that one at all, Lee. So, the, you know, you got a good one with Steve Jobs, but you got a absolutely horrible one with John McCain. Okay, now somewhere in the middle, and I would say closer to Jobs than McCain, because he's not bad. I, I don't 
think bad things about. I actually, I'm making him sound worse than I meant to. Denzel Washington, you saw Denzel's on list. Denzel's, I think it's fine, but I just don't think Denzel Medal of Freedom. I I think he's a fine actor, but do you see what I'm saying? Does he have the gravitas for Medal of Freedom? Uh, no, he's not really a public person. I've never. I mean, his, you see little bits of him say some stuff that I, I think you would agree with, Lee, especially about the media. But uh, no, I wouldn't agree that he's done anything besides being a, a great black actor. And just a quick side note: uh, I had an ex-girlfriend at the University of Penn. And I've partied. Uh, oh, I was at the same party as his son Isaiah, who used to play on Penn's basketball team. And how was he? Nice enough guy. Oh yeah, the ladies love the ladies love him. He's not tall, real short, but you know the ladies love him. So, also on that list was I, I, I might get her name wrong. Is Simone Biles correct? Yeah. Okay, I didn't screw that up at all? Not at all. Okay. And speaking of which, sort of, because another black athlete, have you heard the Brittany Griner trial started in Russia? Yeah, I was going to actually bring that up, Lee, because, you know, they wanted to make it seem like she's she's, she's this horror, you know, this political prisoner who's being treated horribly. And I'm like, have you, you know, if you've seen the pictures of her, I'm like, she looks healthy, she looks like she's actually gained weight. And I'm like, she's in an all-woman's prison, and she's a celebrity. I don't think, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think she's under horrible conditions, if, if, you, if you know what I mean, Lee. The worst thing for her is she can't get weed. Because oh, no, she's, she's in prison. It's probably even easier, so she's probably smoking all the weed she can uh, can handle. But that's a, that's a big story over here. But when we asked Mark Sobot about it a few weeks ago, he hadn't heard of it. So I don't think it's as big a deal in Russia as it is here. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think she's going to get she, – she's she is a celebrity over there. She's played over there for years. That's where she makes most of her money. She only – you know, they, they they barely get paid six figures here in America. Um, she's probably she going to get – She plays for a Russian team. Is that not right? Correct. Yeah, she's been playing there for years. I think like six, seven years, something like that. I think she's going to get some type of probation, a fine, and then they're going to tell her you can't come back for a couple of years. That's going to – you know, that's about it. And flying with weed, I just got to say, getting on an airplane in general with weed, if you're going to the airport and you realize you've got a couple of vape carts on your person, you don't get them on the plane, right? I mean, this is common sense. You bring the edibles, Lee, you know, you get little gummies or like the Tic Tacs or whatever, you know, whatever form you do it and you'll be good. And sometimes you just take them right before you get on the plane. But uh, let's go, because I'll tie all this in. You see Steve Jobs and the iPhone were a common thread there. And when I get into my philosophical insight that goes back to the history of Marxism, which I'll do after this call, you'll see it all ties in. 202-521-1320. Ingrid, what is on your mind? 
Well, too many things. I, I had to choose. Um, yesterday, John in, um, had on his show a the woman reporter who was knocked down by police in California covering uh, a Roe v. Wade protest. And so they were having a reasonable conversation until they came to the point of there's apparently a judge somewhere who has uh, issued an order or made a statement about Antifa being a conspiracy. And they, and they just started laughing like, ha ha, Antifa, they're anarchists. How can they be a conspiracy? And then mocking the idea that household items like soup cans can be used as weapons. Well, if you get hit in the head with a soup can that's been shot from an improvised rocket launcher, I'm sure you're going to admit that that it's a weapon. And uh, this was very distressing to me that that they should just ridicule this. And there may not be an overarching control of Antifa, but they absolutely do organize their groups and plan their actions. But yesterday, you had Manila Chan on, and she was painting this very grim picture of downtown D.C., which really surprised me. Now, I don't get out anymore. I don't go into the city. And so I have no way of knowing what she was talking about. I've started asking other people, well, you know, do you see this? And I started to wonder if Manila feels threatened more because there's been so much anti-Asian violence of late. Um, But I'd like to invite her to come on Monday to the parade that's going to be in Palisades in D.C. Muriel Bowser will be there. Everybody will be there. There's going to be a contingent of people walking uh, in favor of Julian Assange. It's a very... It's very local, but it's a very political parade. All the, the the officials who can participate, and there's bands and dancing units, but any kind of people can join. You just have to show up at 1030, get in line, and you can march. <clears throat> well, uh, thanks for the calling, Gerd. When, well, I, when I've talked to people about that neighborhood around where the studio is and around the White House. The last time I walked down, I guess it's 11th. I think it's 11th. Uh, but it was, a, it's a street above the White House. Uh, I saw so many windows that were boarded up and it was pretty frightening. And that generally comports with my view that I'm hearing from people. They say a lot of restaurants around there, all of them, John Kiriakou told me all the restaurants are closed. As far as Antifa, I've noticed people who I would call broadly on the left. And I think both John and Michelle would agree they're broadly on the left. Some might say the real left, but they they're dismissive of Antifa. 
I've noticed this going back to when I was coasting a show with Carla Nixon, who's the coast of the critical hour with Dr. Wilmer and Leon on this very network. They're dismissive in general. And in a way that I felt always felt was unfair. And as part of them demonizing Trump supporters, who they're quick to judge if they're in a group. And I thought what happened in front of the White House was more of an insurrection. And it's not considered that. There's no hearings about that. And it's also an attitude that I see echoed by the authorities. Right, Rod? Have you noticed the police seems to treat Antifa differently? Rod, in general, like the less um, of a threat? I would say in general, yeah, but, uh, you know, in Philadelphia during 2020, there's a lot of video of it. I think you would see the complete opposite, especially for the, uh, the officers that know what's going on. They see Antifa as a threat. Um, uh, so, yeah, I agree with you that. And FBI downplays it. Uh, but we did hear um, uh, FBI Director Wright, um, Ray talk about that these Antifa types are, are flying to Ukraine and getting training over there and coming back here. Yes. Now, we got me ahead. Okay, so this is going to be a great segment. I'm really looking forward to this. And this is the kind of segment I like doing, especially before a big three-day holiday weekend. Coming up, author of the book, Meathead, you guessed it, and proprietor of the AmazingRibs.com website, barbecue grilling expert, cook scientist extraordinaire, Meathead Goldwyn. Let's take a short break and talk to Meathead, and you are going to learn how to make great food here on The Backstory. in Washington, D.C., and we are truly honored to be joined on this three-day Fourth of July weekend as you prep for it out in the hot heat all across this country, and it is miserable hot lots of places. Author of the book Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling, Meathead Golwin. How are you doing, Meathead? Oh, man, I'm hungry. How about you? Well, if you're hungry, you come to the right place because Meathead Golan's going to be here. Oh, wait, you're Meathead Golan. <laughs> How you been, brother? I'm ready to start cooking. You know, it, this is this is a food weekend, isn't it? It is, and that's why we want to have you. And we're, we are really honored to have you with us. So let's talk. And, and by the way, his book, Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecuing and Grilling, can be found wherever books are sold. And I not only highly recommend it, but I made sure to give this, and you were kind enough to sign it to my brother for Christmas, because I knew my brother who cooks 
would love it. And sure enough, he did. And so I once again, thank you, Meathead, for signing the book and for writing the book. Appreciate it. I had fun writing it. I'm working on another one, too. Don't hold your breath, though. When's that due out? Uh, it'll be out spring of 24. And do you have a title yet? Because it's going to be hard for you to top Meathead. It's called The Meathead Method. And I'm going to try to describe all the different techniques and concepts and um, methods that I use uh, when grilling and smoking and uh, cooking outdoors. And I won't ask if you're the only cook you know named Meathead, but I will say you are the only scientist that I know huh. named Meathead. Well, I, And I'm you are, in fact, not, a scientist. I, I don't think I classify as a scientist, but I do love the science of food because anytime you step into the kitchen or you open that grill, you do commence a chemistry and a physics experiment. And uh, I like to think of it that way. And by doing so, I help myself learn how to get better at it. And that's what's in my book and on AmazingRibs.com, my website, is a lot of the science that explains what fire is and what heat is and what smoke is and how they interact with food and what is in food. And so it, it is a, a lot of science. But I mean, I don't really I'm not really a scientist. You're so good. You, you are a scientist because ah. my brother thought, thought the same thing. When I bought your book, which I bought it before you were a guest on the show, when I bought your book, I was impressed by how much it's you're not a fly by the seat of the pants guy. You really do talk a lot about the science and yeah. how grilling temperatures affect the flavor of things, correct? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that in there. Uh, the, the first half of the book is really a textbook. The second half of the book are recipes that put the concepts to work. But um, it's fun. You know, this is 2022. We're a highly technological society. I think a lot of people who cook don't want to know. They don't want to hear me tell them, do step one, do step two, do step three, and just shut up. They want to know, why do I do step one? And what happens if I skip steps two? And if I change white sugar for brown sugar, what are the consequences? And so people are really interested in understanding why now. And there's a movement among cooks, not just barbecue cooks, but anybody who's ever watched Alton Brown. Um, you, know, you know that there's this interest in uh, the chemistry and the physics of cooking. And, and there's a, a small but growing group of us cooks who are nerds and are into it in a big way. Now, let's start raw with the raw meat. Because mm. we're going to help people prepare for the 4th of July. And they got a couple of days for it. So obviously, the first step in your meal journey is going to be what to buy. And you have the website you mentioned, AmazingRibs.com. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I named it AmazingRibs.com. You know, when I first launched it, that was the first recipe I posted is a ribs recipe. And, you know, for me... Fourth of July is ribs. I mean, Thanksgiving is turkey and Fourth of July is ribs. And it, the way we cook ribs in this country is different than any other country. You know, you go to the um, to Poland and Czechoslovakia and they simmer ribs and they make a stew out of it with uh, cabbage and potatoes and caraway. But the way we cook it here, low and slow and smoking it with a, uh, a, a barbecue sauce, 
it's uniquely American. And I think uh, barbecue ribs is a uh, uniquely American dish in the same way that jazz is. You know, uh, yes, and we've talked about that on the show, too. Uh, it, it is a uniquely American cuisine, and it brings together so many different influences from the slave influence and what they brought over from Africa to Spanish to uh, American white trash like me. For instance, uh, <laughs> you mentioned the German Czechoslovak traditions uh and, and barbecue brings those together. But let's start out at the – imagine a store in your mind. If someone's going to buy ribs, what kind of ribs should they buy? What I mean by that is there's you know, baby back, there's country style, whatever. What do you recommend yeah. people start with for ribs? There's several different cuts. Baby backs are the curved ribs that attach to the spine and they wrap around the side. And just think of your ribs. Um, they they start at your back and they wrap around the side and right in the, about in the middle of the side, they stop. And from there, they curve around the front and that section is called spare ribs. Um, if, there, there's, if you cut off the chest section, um, which is called the rib tips, you have a center cut um, which is uh, mostly flat bones, and that's the um, called the St. Louis cut for some reason. Now, on the, uh, the uh, baby backs or the back ribs, the meat tends to be on top of the bones. On the side ribs and the, uh, the, the spare ribs, the meat tends to be between the bones. It's a little fattier on the side and the chest area, um, it's a little leaner in the baby backs. So it's up to you. Um, I think the side ribs or the St. Louis cut, which is that center cut, is my favorite because it's a nice mix of meat and fattiness. And, you know, I've heard people say, well, I went to this restaurant and I ha ordered the ribs and boy, were they fatty. Well, that's ribs, baby. I mean, they're fatty. You can't avoid it. It's not diet food. And that's one of the reasons it's so flavorful. Now, there is another cut called country ribs, but they're really not ribs. They come up from by the shoulder area, near the top of the baby backs, up in the shoulder area. And if you look at them, there's rarely any rib bones in there. Um, I don't know why they're called ribs. They're more pork chops, and they are, you cook them very differently than you do ribs. So they're technically, they're called ribs, but they're not ribs. Now, for it to be a rib, as far as you're concerned, it has to have a bone in it, is that correct? Well, a rib bone, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, ribs. Got to have ribs. Now, where does beef ribs, as opposed to pork ribs, uh, fit into this schema? Uh, you're singing my song. Most people don't know much about beef ribs, um, but they're the same idea. From the back of the steer, um, those ribs bones that come around the side, they lie right underneath the ribeye. That rib section is the rib eye section or the rib roast section. If you're doing a big Christmas rib roast, there's often rib bones attached to it. And if you remove those bones, they make an awfully good meal. And in fact, I usually do that at Christmas. I buy a full rib primal, it's called, and that is a seven bone um, rib roast. And I take the bones off and, and set them aside for another meal because they're just fantastic. And this way I get this solid tube of meat 
without any bones on it. Now, I know you like to chew on the bones, but the bones are like a heat shield when you're cooking a rib roast. And the meat next to the bones never cooks as well as it does on the opposite side where there are no bones. And I want my meat cooked evenly throughout. So I get two meals out of it. I get the rib roast and then the bones. And those backbones, those back ribs, you can occasionally buy them because more and more butchers are doing that. They're taking them off. And reef, rib, uh, beef rib back ribs are really tasty, and there's a lot of meat in between the bones. You won't find much meat on top because the ribeye meat is so valuable and expensive. They don't leave much on the bones. But as you move around the side, you'll get meatier bones. And in fact, if you ever go down to Texas, they call them dinosaur bones because they run eight, 10 inches long and there can be two inches of meat on top of them. They take forever to cook because you don't want to cook any ribs, pork ribs or beef ribs. You don't want to cook them hot. Once you cook them hot, the muscle fibers shrink and they squeeze out the moisture and you're going to end up with dry meat. So you want to cook it low and slow. I like to cook them both, beef and pork, at around 225, which is pretty low. It can take eight hours to cook beef side ribs um, uh, at 225, and pork ribs can take three to five hours, um, depending on how much meat is on them, uh, to get them perfectly tender. But when you do that, when you cook them low and slow, you get the fat to melt and you get this connective tissue. Think about now your ribs. They're the cage, the rib cage that protects all your vital organs inside of that rib cage, your lungs, your heart, your stomach, your intestine. It's all inside there. And they're held together tight because they got to protect you. And there's a lot of connective tissue in there. Well, if you cook it low and slow for a long time, it melts the connective tissue. It turns into gelatin. And boy, th that makes a huge difference for the texture. I know a lot of people take ribs and just throw them on a hot grill and grill them up. They're gonna be too tough that way. Dial it back, take your time, um, cook them low and slow. Whether you're cooking them indoors or outdoors or on a smoker, dial the temperature down. Now, where do you come down on the issue? Because we, if, if you're planning to cook out Monday, you, you do have a whole weekend to prepare for it. Where do you come down on the issue of marinade? Do you marinate ribs ever? And if so, what do you like? This is, you know, you've read the book. You know that I spend a lot of time in there busting myths. You know, I learned how to grill from my dad. And my dad learned how to grill from his dad. And he learned from his dad. And that's probably how you learned and half your listeners learned. Well, we're in an era now where there are actually colleges offering degrees in meat science. And there's all kinds of interesting equipment and technology that um, we are using to learn. And one of the things that we've learned is, is that marinades don't perform the way we think they do. Marinades are really just a surface treatment. The molecules in most marinades can't penetrate the meat. In fact, most marinades have oil in it. Now, let's think about this for a second. Meat is 75% water. Oil and water don't mix. There's no way on this planet the oil in a marinade is getting into that meat. And those that the, the, the sugar, 
Sugar's 23 atoms. It's a huge molecule. It can't go beyond the little tiny cracks and crevices on the surface. So marinades might get a 16th or at the most an eighth of an inch deep. And I've got photographs on AmazingRibs.com where I've dyed marinades green. So you can see they just don't penetrate. Um, so you can marinate all you want. You're just treating the surface. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you can get lots of flavor out of it. The thing you want to do in advance is salt. Salt is the magic rock. Salt is just two teeny atoms, sodium and chloride, NaCl. And when they get on the meat, they get wet. And when they get wet, they get an electric charge. It's called ionization. And they penetrate deep into the meat. It takes a lot of time because it's, low it's, it's a long slog through that wet muscle tissue but they get deep into the meat and they change the protein structure slightly so that proteins actually can hold on to more moisture once they've been treated with salt. So I'm a big fan of what I call dry brining. And you take this salt and you sprinkle the salt on the meat hours before you cook. How much and how long depends on how thick the meat is. A turkey breast um, is gonna take longer for the salt to penetrate than a slab of ribs. So you basically just want to sprinkle a teaspoon of Morton's coarse kosher salt. That's my standard salt. It's a little uh, less potent than table salt. Half a teaspoon of table salt per pound of meat. Sprinkle it on there several hours in advance. You can do it overnight, doesn't hurt. And that'll give it a chance to penetrate, do its magic, help that protein hold on to moisture, and it also amplifies flavor without altering it. Sugar and garlic and pepper all alter the flavor. So it's a real, it's the magic rock. So you wanna get the salt on early, then if you wanna marinate, or if you want to um, put a, a dry rub on, uh, it really doesn't matter how much further in advance you do that. Now, that brings us to dry rubs. So what is, and you might have to think about this, What's the weirdest dry rub you ever made that turned out to be great? What's the most unusual dry rub that you almost didn't think it would work and it turned out to be delicious? Meathead? Well, that's a tough one. I, 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 I'm going to answer. You're going to think me immodest here, but I've made a lot of rubs and they all work because I know what I'm doing. Um, um I, you know, I just, I've had a lot of failures when I cook. I've ruined an awful lot of food, but I don't think I've ever screwed up a rub because first of all, you know, you got to get the salt down and then you have to ask yourself what goes well with this meat. For example, with chicken and turkey, I love herbs, tarragon, thyme, rosemary. They really work. Um, uh, so I, you know, I, I don't know that I would be adding things like um, balsamic vinegar or something. I, sorry, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I, I, I've screwed up a lot of recipes, but never a rub. Well, what works especially well for ribs then, since you're talking uh, about ribs? Your, your, pork loves sugar. Um, uh, a little bit of sugar is a great place to start. I mean, that's your barbecue sauces are almost all sweet. Um, pork does very nicely with a little sugar. Um, uh, paprika. Um, uh, garlic, uh, onion. Um, uh, I like a little sprinkle of ginger. 
You find that in, in ribs at, in the Chinese restaurants. There's almost always ginger in them. Um, that's a nice touch. Uh, I like a little rosemary in there. I have a recipe on AmazingRibs.com called Meathead's Memphis Dust. And that's pretty much the core of it there. Um, uh, sugar and uh, black pepper and paprika and a little ginger and uh, uh, garlic and onion. And uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting some things, but uh, a rosemary. But it, it really works. And a lot of competition teams use it, and it's won a lot of money. So you can go there and get it. If you don't feel like making it, we just this year finally put some rubs into bottles that are available in stores. They're not in a lot of stores yet because they just came on the market, but they are on Amazon. You can just search for meatheads or you can find them on our website. And uh, so let's go on to sauces. So do you ever use commercial sauces or do you go with making your own? I've always made my own and it's pretty easy. Now I've screwed up sauces a lot. Um, and uh, more than rubs, because um, I'm always trying weird stuff, you know. Um, so I have screwed up sauces a lot, um, adding all kinds of juices and stuff. Um, but again, you know, if you like your classic Kansas City sweet sauce, like a Sweet Baby Ray's, um, they're all based on tomato uh, paste or ketchup. So you start there. And usually you amp, amp it up with a little uh, molasses or honey or brown sugar. And then you can go into your spices. Again, your garlic and your onion. I, I have some recipes for some really good sauces. What's fun about barbecue sauces is there are a great deal of variety in this country. Most of us, when we think of barbecue sauce, we think of that rich, thick, sweet, sticky um, sauce, which we call a Kansas City style because we think it kind of originated around Kansas City. But you get down into the Carolinas and their sauces tend to be more vinegar than anything. In fact, in some parts of the Carolinas, it's just vinegar with salt and pepper in it. And it's really good in the sense that the acidity cuts through the fat. Um, so I mean, a lot of people, it's shocking. Um, you get down into um, South Carolina, and they make a lot of sauces with mustard. You order pulled pork, and it's going to come in yellow, not red. Um, uh, so there's a variety of sauces all around. And I write about that both in the book and on the website. I, I describe of all of the regional sauces. And in fact, I even link to places where you can buy them. Um, and I have recipes that you can try to make them yourself. They're pretty good. They're a lot of fun, too. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the estate of the writer Ernest Hemingway has a few barbecue sauces that they put out under Hemingway barbecue sauces. Have you seen those? I've seen them. I'm not sure that they are Hemingway's recipes, though, because um, I, 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 when I first saw them, I was taken aback. I do a lot of reading. I, I, I love to read fiction. And I went on a kick a couple of years ago and I read just about everything Hemingway wrote. And I, I mean, he's got, he's, he, he was a drinker. I mean, he loved his, his drinks, you know? Um, uh, but, uh, I don't recall ever seeing any barbecue sauces in there. I've seen the Hemingway products, but I think if you read the fine, um, print, they're licensing the brand. I don't think they're his, I don't know. I don't know. So I can't say I don't say think for they're sure. his either, but they're inspired. It's, they say inspired by, and they're pretty packaging, nice bottles, Yeah, they are. but they make a. They make a sauce, Havana, 
inspired by Hemingway's love of Cuba. And that yes. Havana sauce is a very good barbecue sauce. And well, I'm not of course, huge on commercial sauces, but it was good and unique. Well, um, I did mention, I'll tell you, well, um, have Rob send me uh, your address. I'm going to send you our, our rubs and sauces. Uh, we just came out with them. I'll send you a little care package. Okay, I'll, I'll take it. Thank you, Meathead. Thank you. I'll send you something, too. Have you ever tried the Havana sauce? I have not tried any of the Hemingways. I saw them. Now, I live, I find it. I, I, I'm sure I can find it because I live just in, 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 outside of Chicago and um, uh, a few miles from Oak Park, which is where Hemingway's birthplace is. And one of my favorite restaurants is called Hemingway's. And it's right near where his the Hemingway house is. Um, and really? so I'm a, you know, I'm a Hemingway fan. I'm sure it's easily available around here. I'll pick some up on your recommendation. Now, here's a, and again, I think this is something where a lot of regular people aren't into barbecue may screw it up slightly because they, they, they just don't understand. As you say, barbecue sauce is mostly sugar and sugar. When you put it on fire burns, it turns black. So when do you apply barbecue sauce? When do you well, use it? And do you, do you agree way, a lot of people screw it up? I love the way professional interviewers like you are, work because you know the answer. You just make them believe you don't. Thank you very much for leading me in. And of course, embedded in your question is the answer. If you put your sauce on too early because it does have so much sugar, it will burn. And so you don't want to do that. You want to roast the ribs either on the grill or in the oven or on a smoker without sauce and just roast it at a low temperature. So if there's sugar in the rub, it doesn't burn and get it almost all the way done. In fact, get it done. And then when it's done, you lay on the sauce. And a lot of people put too much on there, um, in my opinion. For me, a really great slab of ribs or any piece of meat or vegetable, you're building a symphony. You want really good quality pork. You want a really good rub. You want the salt to penetrate and do its magic. Then you want the smoke and the heat and the flame to do their magic. And finally, you want the, 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 the um, sauce. So these are all instruments in the orchestra. And you don't want one to blast over the other. So I like the sauce. And I just love your classic red Kansas City sauce. And I'll paint it on there, but I'll just paint one layer. Now, if it's a really thin one, I might go to two layers, but I don't want to overwhelm the meat. And you do it after the meat is done cooking. And sometimes, now I have a smoker and I like to smoke my ribs because I think smoke adds another instrument to the symphony and it's a nice flavor. And you can do smoking on a, on a gas grill or a charcoal grill too. And I explain how on, a, on my website or, and we can even talk about it if you want. But um, I like the little smoke on it. I'll take it out of the smoker and put it over on my gas grill. I'll turn that gas grill up on high. And now I've got the, the sauce on there. I lift the lid and I put it on the gas grill and just three or four minutes on either side. And what happens is it starts bubbling and the sugars undergo a chemical reaction. It's called caramelization. And you get a new set of flavors out of that sauce. And it tastes different than it tastes right out of the bottle. And in fact, it tastes better. It tastes more complex. So I like to sizzle on the sauce. So I'll cook the ribs 
all the way through, low and slow. Layer on the sauce and then give it all she's got, Scotty, with a little heat and sizzle it in. So why don't you talk about the grill thing that you were going to mention? Go ahead well, and talk about okay. that. Yeah, it's an easy concept. I want everybody out there who's cooking on a grill and doesn't have a smoker to learn two-zone cooking. And it's really important. Um, cooking is all about temperature control. And two-zone cooking means you divide the grill in half. And you have a hot side and a not hot side. And let's say you got a gas grill with three burners. You put one burner on high or two burners on high, but the other burner on the other end, it's off. So you have one side that's hot, one side that's not. And you're going to do most of your cooking over the burner that's off. If you've got a charcoal grill, you're going to push all the charcoal to one side. Now, a lot of books show people pushing it to both sides or turning on the burners, one on each end. I don't want you to do that. I want you to have a hot side and a not hot side. It's like being outside on a hot, sunny day. When you're outside on a hot, sunny day and it's 90 degrees, um, you can feel that heat. And that's not ultraviolet. That's infrared. That heat you're feeling. Yeah, UV will burn your skin, but ultraviolet is does not carry the heat that UV ultra uh, infrared carries you so when you're cooking over flame or over glowing coals you're exposing the meat to infrared radiation and you don't want to do that until the very end because that's potent it's strong so you're going to cook almost everything i mean how many times have you gone to a, a 4th of July party where people are cooking up chicken and the chicken comes off and it's black and the barbecue sauce is burnt and you bite into it and it's raw. And that's because chicken skin has got a lot of fat in it and it burns easily. And barbecue sauce has got a little sugar and it burns easily. But you've got to cook chicken to 160 degrees minimum to make it safe. And you don't want to send granny, granny to the hospital on the 4th of July. So you start it over in the shade away from the infrared radiation, where the burners are, is, are off or where there's no charcoal. It takes longer, but it's going to cook gently by convection airflow, and it's going to cook evenly. You're not going to get overcooked exterior and undercooked interior. It's going to cook evenly. And then when it's almost done, you move that chicken or the ribs directly over the hot side, where the infrared radiation is and that's where you sear it and you sear it at the end not the beginning if you sear it at the beginning you're loading up the exterior with energy and it starts to work its way to the center and you get a nice dark sear on the outside but then you get a layer of brown and a layer of tan and a layer of pink and maybe in the center it's properly cooked but if you like a steak if you warm it gently first in the zone, the, infra, the, the, the the convection zone, the zone that has no flame, no infrared, the shade side. And Meathead, we're out of time, but a fantastic appearance. We went right up to the last second with you, Meathead Goldwyn. His book is Meathead. His site is AmazingRibs.com. Fantastic pre of July appearance by Meathead Goldwyn. Coming up more on The Backstory.
4th of July show and the ideal guests. Thanks again to Meathead Golan for joining us for the last segment. If you missed that segment, go back and get hungry because it's a great segment with Meathead. We have a three-day weekend coming up. We have no show on Monday because it's a federal holiday, July 4th. But this is a show that brings you the truth behind the barbecue. The backstory. Now, Rod, if that segment didn't make you a little hungry, you're officially that Google AI bot. Is that fair to say? Nah. <laughs> it's funny because I got some uh, St. Louis-style ribs waiting for me right here. So, uh, so yeah. You know, like I said, uh, I do the big bro method. Like, uh, well, well, what um, Mihan was talking about for hours. I do three and a half hours. In the last 30, maybe 15 to 30 minutes, I'll broil it on low. Now, I also got to say, I don't often say this, Rod, but hear me out. Your job's in jeopardy here, and here's why. Make sure you follow up. Meathead wants to send me stuff. You follow me? So don't, don't miss taking advantage of that. It's not a threat. It's a warning. But does that make sense? I got you. Don't worry about it. Meathead's yeah, nice you. enough. And, and, you know, if he throws you some swag, too, take it. But Meathead's a great guy, isn't he? Oh yeah, for sure. It's definitely interesting hearing about the science of cooking uh, different different meats, you know, pork, beef, and uh, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely great. Now, we had a meathead in the first hour. In the second hour, we're getting all misty because joining us this hour, Comrade Misty from Twitter, Putin's buddy, Misty Winston will be joining us to talk politics. First time guest. I've talked to her before when I was on Tara Reid's show a week ago. That's this hour, and we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. Vegetarians, don't even bother. Don't even bother calling a complaint by Meathead. Save it for Morrissey. Cry those tears into your broccoli. We don't want to hear it here on The Backstory. And boy, that was... I'm telling you, before a three-day weekend that culminates in July 4th, that's the guest you want, Meathead. Now, I was talking before, and we had a couple Apple references. Let me make one more broad Apple reference, and then I'll get in the philosophical point. I noticed over on Amazon, you know them, Rod, you've heard of them, but they're selling refurbished Mac minis. I, I make no commission on this. I'm not trying to make any money. But you can buy a Mac Mini. On all, you know what refurbished means? It's a used one, but it's been, you know, made as new again. Does it make sense, Ron? Yeah, I just bought a refurbished phone. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So, yeah, I've done that too. And refurbished is a good way to go in these times of high European inflation. And it's not bad in the U.S. either. But the headline today is that European inflation is at the highest point since, like, World War II. It's 8.6%. Hey, how's that Russian sanctions working out for you, Europe? Congratulations to you. Great job. But uh, is that mean to me? I don't care. The EU would have destroyed Russia's economy and laughed about it. 
wouldn't they have Rod? They would have giggled about it. Oh but yeah, they would have. They would have threw a party. Right. Instead, I'll throw a party and laugh at the Europeans destroying their own economy, and the ruble is at an all-time high, it's, or close to it. It's very close to it, and they've got a sustainable economy that's independent. And so all you Europeans stick together, and Ron and I will be laughing at you. But uh, I saw a refurbished Mac Mini over on Amazon for under 200 bucks. And when you can, and again, it's a couple years old, but still, if you want a Mac to do word processing or web development, it wouldn't be great for video or 3D graphics. Does that make sense, Rod? That for some things, it wouldn't be great. But for other things, word processing, under 200 bucks for a Mac is crazy. Agreed? Yeah, for sure. Apple products hold their value forever. And uh, we'll go to Tarif in one second. Well, actually, let me just, because I still want to bring up my philosophical point, and I haven't gotten to it yet. But if I start it, I don't want to stop it. So let's go to Tarif. Tarif, welcome to Backstory. What's on your mind, aside from ribs and Julian Assange? <laughs> yeah, Julian Assange is always on our mind. My mind, everybody's mind. Lately, he been picking up steam. He got Meritor Green, I mean Green, and some other people calling for him to be pardoned. This man should be out of prison. So free Julian Assange. I have two comments. Now, by the way, you're because you're you're in Louisiana. Are you looking forward to good food this weekend? Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. We're gonna put some stuff on the grill. You know, some chicken and some hamburgers. You know. But, mo you know, some of my family's going out of town, so it's like not that many people cooking, you know. So I do, okay. it, I do, do it myself, you know. Okay, um, what's on your mind, Rafe? First comment is um, I saw a report that in the, the Bash region, some of the foreign fighters like Polish, British, and American um, uh, mercenaries, from what I understand, has been basically executed by their own um, by the uh, Ukrainian Azov Battalion because they're afraid if they get in, um, caught by the Russians that they might give up valuable information about, you know, troop deployments and, you know, uh, uh, spy operations and things of that nature. So there's rumors coming out. Some of these uh, foreign troops is being killed because the Russians and the, and, and the, the Bas militia is finding Soldiers, foreign or soldiers being shot in the back, you know, with the hands tied behind the back, you know. So something's going on, you know. And my um, my last comment is um, Finley came another morale booster for the Ukrainians. Yeah, yeah, I know, huh? Yeah, and also they're using them as just to, you know, to, to cover them as they escape, and even the foreign foreigners behind too, to get captured. That's another thing they're doing. But Finley. They, uh, Finley came out earlier today. The uh, Finnish foreign minister, Peter Visto, came out saying that Finland states it will not extradite its citizens to other countries under any circumstances. So we all know about what Turkey wants from Finland and, and Sweden. But I understand Sweden already gave up 12 people 
Now, these are supposed to be two democratic countries that are supposed to be uh, watching out for people. By them signing deals with Turkey now, that that makes them net avoid of like bringing up anything about dictatorships. They can't say nothing about dictatorships now because now they're going to be giving up people to Turkey now for um, you know political favors to be included in NATO. But yeah, that's all. I want. That's all I have to say for the day. You know, in Nord Stream Two, Pike, the new Nord Stream One is being closed down for ten days from. July the 11th to July the 21st. Yep, that's it. Thanks, Jerry. Great, great points, as usual. So here's the philosophical point. I was reading somewhat of, on the history of fascism as a political system because it's relevant to Ukraine. And I came across someone I wasn't actually familiar with, a writer and philosopher from the 19th century named George Sorrell. George Sorrell was a Marxist, and he was a student of Marx, but he's also, ironically, one of the philosophical fathers of fascism. And there's, it's clear that Hitler, for instance, hated Marx, so it doesn't make sense until you start reading the beliefs. And Sorrell talked about how the 20th century, the modern era, after the 19th century, talked about how the 19th century was the age of the individual. But the important thing in the 20th century became moving the masses, moving large groups of people. And fascism, and and it doesn't matter how you're moving them. And where Sorrell and even even Hitler respected Marx's ability to move the masses of people. But I thought of that idea, I hadn't really thought of it before, of the big movement that they were taking advantage of is moving masses of people and not even moving them towards the truth, but just moving them. Propaganda is a way of moving large numbers of people. So makes sense so far, Rod, that this idea that the modern era was a modern era of moving masses of people, millions of people at a time. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, that makes sense. Now, so here's my question for you, and it ties into the Apple computer stuff. Given the fact that we're in the age of the iPhone and the personal computer in general, let me ask you, and th- think about it, because it's not an obvious answer, and I'm not sure I have the right answer on this yet, but it is the age of information, the modern age of technology, the age of the masses or of the individual? You see what I'm saying? This modern era now, this post-computer era, is it the age of the masses or the individual more. Rod, what say you? Mm, that's an interesting question, Lee. Um, if I, you know, with the little time you gave me, I would say it's the age of the, the individual. And the only reason I say that is because people are under a uh, perception that because of the internet and social media, they feel connected to uh, all, you know, like like 
family and friends, let's say, because you're on social media. But I think that's artificial and it's not real. And it's in uh, the last 15 years, we're talking about the anniversary of the iPhone. The last 15 years have showed that and we've become less connected. So people, I think it's the age of the individual, but it's a, uh, I think it's a false belief. I think, um, and we, we kind of need to uh, move the masses in the right direction. Well, let me, let me say that I think you're mostly right. When you say that it's a false belief, let me say, but it's more complex than that. You could go out and buy that $200 computer, I said, and, or buy a phone. If you, wanted to, if you didn't like the news and you want to start your own podcast, you could start your own podcast, put it up, and it would be available to people around the world. Asterisk. You know what I mean by asterisk? I'm saying it's more complex than that. You could put it up, but someone might want to take it down. Right? So it's more complex. So in, and that's my point. You're right. In some ways, it's the error of the individual. But the truth of the reality of this is more complex than that. If you want to start your own newspaper, you could publish it online. Does that make sense? And you, right. the technology is there, so it's available to everyone in the world, in theory. Asterisk, right? Does that sound right, Rod? Yeah, no, I agree with you that 100%. And the reason this is such a screwed up error is that this error is not clearly one, the age of the individual or to the age of the masses. But we've got one foot in one era and another foot in the, the uh, other era. It's the age of empowered individuals, but it's the age of empowered individuals being able to affect masses of people. But we've got a third foot, and the problem is we don't have three feet. In this modern era, where both the individual has the ability to affect the masses, but the masses, through people who figured out how to harness that power, have struck back against the individual's power. Does that make sense? So the New York Times has figured out how to not only stay alive in the modern era, because it's still around, but they figured out how to kill the power of individuals. Now, not kill it dead, but mute it. So that's it. And I'm going nowhere with this, but because I'm not trying to. But I'm giving you something to think about. We're in an, an era of both empowered individuals and empowered defensive mass movements. And a lot of the battles we see in the world today, I think, are another variant of that battle. Does that make any sense at all, Rod? Lee, I, I think and talk about this stuff all the time. And uh, if we um, downgrade it a little bit of the conversation, let's just talk about between men and women. Uh, um, my girl was in a meeting for work the other day, and she was showing off the engagement ring and <laughs> all the other all the other women, because it's all women in her in her group for work, were disgusted. Like, oh, no, 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 I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to be married again, this, that, and the third. So you, it's, it's, the battles on every level, you know what I mean? Yes, and and I think by going back and reading 
history, I learn a lot about the present day because a lot of these problems and, and the fact that we see fascism and that when you think of fascism as a way of moving masses, no wonder fascism is underlying a lot of the political stuff we see going on today. Does that make sense? That, duh, when you think fascism is a way of moving large groups of people, then a lot in the modern world makes sense suddenly. Yeah, no, I agree with you that. Uh, you, you saw it personally. I wasn't there. I saw it from uh, a couple miles away, a couple, uh, like 100 miles away. But uh, the women's march of all these women after Trump was inaugurated and they were coming and I don't know what their frustration was, but the, the, it was a lot. Of, it was a lot of people. It was over like a million people, a million women mostly. Yes, and they were all individuals who felt empowered to. I can't even say it. You, you know, the kitty hats. You know what I'm getting at, Rod? Right, right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But they all got them online and downloaded it, and I guarantee you, every one of them thought. It was their idea. What I mean is they didn't see that they were being influenced as a mass, but there they were on the bus, and I saw them all with their kitty hats. And so I, I, I'm reading about this. I'm reading George, it's George Sorrell, S-O-R-E-L. And when you start to look up Sorrell, you'll see how important he was. It was an early influence on fascists like Mussolini, like Hitler. And you see, he was a Marxist who believed that it wasn't just class that motivate people, but he believed that Marxists needed to understand sociology. And that explains to me so much of what's going on now. 202-521-1320, the perfect follow-up caller to that. And hopefully he's hungry for ribs. Hopefully it's not a vegetarian owl. Owl killer, what's on your mind? As long as they're beef ribs, I, I, I'm, I'm down. Um, you know, it's I, I, you know, every time I call in, uh, you always, I have to drop what I initially want to call in about. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's um, a. I think what you're seeing now when you're saying it's the both the individual of it it's the time of the uh individual and the time of the masses I think the one thing that the technology has done is it's able to make followers it, it makes they find they find somewhere where they can fit in but it also allows individuals to actually see that there's a lot of Rather than you being isolated and think you're the only person that thinks a certain way, you see, oh, hey, I'm not alone. And I think that came out with the, I think one way they, that the establishment has tried to counter that has been with the bots, um, on, specifically on Twitter, where more than half of somebody like Obama or uh, Joe Biden's followers are bots. And it's, it's the same thing for a lot of these celebrities. Um, and I, I think it's, that is done to make people think that it's hopeless. So at the same time where people can see that um, there's people that there's, there's large, there's millions, potentially billions of people that think the way they do, and they're not that small. I think there's another, it, the, when they counter with, they counter us with things like bots, it makes people 
think that it, it may be hopeless. So it's a double-edged sword. I think te- technology as a whole um, is, is a double-edged sword. You know, with the Internet, it dry, you have access to more information than ever before, but at the same time, you're able to memory hold stuff where once you get everything digital, they can take it off the Internet as fast as they put it up there. And I, I think that was um, a tactic that uh, – what we would call like the tech, uh, the technocratic elites. I, I think that's what they've gone, especially in the era of Trump, is where um, they'll they ban censure and they block access to uh, information that'll counter their narrative. I don't think any. I mean, I I think Mussolini, specifically Mussolini, when he was asked what fascism was, was a merger of state and corporate powers. I don't think you. I don't think there's any. This is like techno fascism. That that's what we're that's what we're experiencing now. Where, I mean, in there's like one or two uh, major corporations for a, any type of um, product that's made, whether it's technology, whether, e, e, even with food. You know, I mean, there you, you get one or two choices, and it, it, you can't say that this is. I, it's it's not the free market that so like a, a libertarian um, perspective would, you know, like a, like a Ron Paul uh, would, you know, that's, this is not the free market where the consumer is voting the corporation or the, uh, the person that owns a company rich. You're, you're basically being fed into where all with, where, with everything is in the hands of a, a very few. And, you know, they're going to produce where they're producing everything. And we don't really have the choices that, where we, we can actually do something for ourselves. Um, well, Alco, let me give you another concept to riff on for a second, and a slightly changing topics. But the reason it was uh, significant to me when I was hearing about this definition of fascism, it was not the definition I was expecting. It's not that it was wrong. But it, it took it off in another direction. And it pointed out that fascism is, is generally a non-ideological, it's a pragmatic philosophy, but it's really about moving masses of people. And I thought of it differently. Now, does that make sense? That what just wasn't, I thought it was going to be about ideology, but it defined it in terms of moving masses. And it made me think about fascism differently. Does that make sense? I mean, I think it's a new perspective. I, I think it's a new way to look at it, though. I, I, yes, I, I agree Th- with that's right. I agree with it in the sense that it's basically a club of, you, you know, you're just using masses of people against another another group. And when, and when you think of fascism, you automatically think authoritarianism, which it is, where well, that idea of it made you, it made me think differently about it. That's a good way to put it. I'll give you another concept, and I forget where I heard this. I think it was Philip K. Dick, the science fiction writer, but it might not have been. It might have been, uh, I, I I can't remember who, but they were talking about paranoia, and they were saying paranoia, a, a definition of paranoia. Because a lot of people might go, well, if you're, it's psychological or whatever. They define paranoia as a heightened state of awareness. 
in other words, when you're paranoid, it's it's your your awareness. In in other words, you think someone's talking about you because you're aware of them talking across the even on a small level. Like if if you stood up and accused someone in a restaurant of talking about you, you overheard them talking. So what do you think of the idea that paranoia is a heightened state of awareness, Al Keller? No, it's funny because in the military, we always had this chart from white to black, and you always wanted to be in the yellow or the orange, where white is where you're totally unaware and black is where you're, where you're so, where you're actually responding to something and you're being basically like you're, you've blacked out. And no, I, I definitely would, I would definitely agree with that. Um, that that's, I don't, I think paranoia is an, it's almost like it's an overused word. It's, I mean, really people, they accuse anybody aware, like of being that's aware or as cautious as being paranoid. But I mean, it, and it, you know, you're, you're not, you know, if, you, if you're going, if you're going, uh, fishing somewhere where you you might have water moccasins it's not paranoia to to put snake boots on you know what i mean that that's being cautious that's being aware of your surroundings so i i don't think that i don't think paranoia might be the the best word for it no but it's a it's a commonly used word and when you think about it that way you'd see that heightened state of awareness it's morally neutral in a sense that if you're if you're too too unaware you're and it's in a sense the opposite paranoid if you're too unaware you're walking around in a daze and that's why when people use terms like i pointed out before that awakened a one way to say that is you're red pilled and your term so far you might say that and if you're a leftist you might say you're woke but they describe the same thing of being aware of more things that you weren't aware of at one point. Anyway, we're going to go to a short break. When we're back, we'll be joined by Misty Winston, Comrade Misky, whose buddy's Putin. And hopefully she can give Rod and I the hookup here for Putin, because we'd like to get him on the show as well. But coming back, first time guest, Misty Winston. Looking forward to it on The Backstory. Backstory and on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. We're joined now by our first time guest, very happy to have her with us, Misty Winston. Misty, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're, we're super excited to have you. And I understand you're going to melt yourself. You're headed to Vegas. Did I read that correctly? I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
I am going to melt myself. I'm going to be headed to Vegas in the middle of July uh, for Freedom Fest this year. Uh, TNT Radio, of whom I am an employee of, uh, was kind enough to sponsor uh, my activist group, Action for Assange. Uh, so they're going to send us to Vegas. I just have to broadcast from the event a few times for them. Um, and we get to set up an exhibitor table for Julian Assange at the event. So it's going to be a good time. I'm going to try to stay inside <laughs> most of the time. Well, try to stay inside. And thank you very much for doing that. Anyone, any activism for Assange, and at Freedom, tell people what Freedom Fest is for those who might not know it. Last year, by the way, it was where I am in South Dakota. Oh, that's see, that's a little bit better than <laughs> July in Vegas. That's a little bit better. Um, so Freedom Fest, I mean, it, it's kind of it is what it sounds. It's a, a convention of sorts um, uh, that really just kind of uh, it, it surrounds the idea of freedom in all its forms. Um, so uh, there's a ton of really amazing speakers. Scott Horton's going to be there. Um, uh, my friend Kyle Anzalone from Antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute is going to be there. Um, there is, uh, you know, just an unbelievable amount. Of really awesome speakers. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of some other ones, but I'm obviously drawing a blank. Would it be um, but fair yeah, to call just, it Comic Con for libertarians, nerds? Uh, yeah, I would say. I would say yes. And I'm not even a libertarian. Um, I don't like isms, uh, so I'm, I wouldn't classify myself as a libertarian. But I feel like that is uh, certainly an audience that I think would be very receptive to the message of what's happening to Julian Assange. Um, and so I'll talk to anybody uh, who uh, will help us in that fight. So I'm really looking forward to it. I know a lot of people, Eliza Blue is going to be there. I'm friends with her. She's a human trafficking survivor and advocate. Um, so I'm really excited to meet her in person. Um, and I just, it's going to be a really great opportunity, I think, to talk to a lot of like-minded people um, on the issue of Julian Assange. And I think you'll get a good reception there. And yes. I do think that because it tends to skew libertarian and therefore what we in America call the right, that it will get, have you noticed that remember, I've talked about this before. Remember a few years ago, the Assange report came largely from what we call the American left. Yes. But somehow that changed in the past few years. Misty? Yes. <laughs> yes. That really happened um, after the 2015 2016 uh, election season. And obviously, the DNC leaks um, and the Hillary Clinton emails that WikiLeaks released. Um, you know, th what's unfortunate about something like this is it's a very, there's a, a real tribal aspect to it. And so there isn't a consistency of principles. So people, you know, liberals, the quote unquote left in the United States, um, you know, when Julian Assange and WikiLeaks was releasing information uh, that was detrimental to Republicans that made George. W. Bush looked bad and that exposed those war crimes. Uh, they loved him. He was a rock star to them. Uh, he once gave a TED talk and got a standing ovation in a room full of liberals. Um, and now, uh, since he dared to upset and uh, damage Queen Hillary, um, that that support has really, really dried up. And it's uh, we are now seeing uh, I, I have better luck with people um, on the right, on the libertarian right in particular, uh, when I'm trying to, to garner support for Julian Assange. And that's to me, I just think that's a broad issue that there is no consistency of principles. Uh, people, it, you know, if my team does it, it's fine. If your team does it, then it's the worst thing that's ever happened. And that's really unfortunate. Now, this is this is your first Freedom Fest? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to give you I'm, I'm a warning hint, Misty, just so you won't be shocked, so you suffer no cardiac arrest. When you go to Freedom <laughs> Fest, is the kind of event where if you're at the booth, and there's a guy wearing a tri-corner hat next to a guy in leather assless chaps. 
That's a perfect yeah. pre-impressed moment. Yeah. I mean, that's my that's my jam. I'm somebody who uh, very much enjoys talking to a wide variety of people from uh, different ideological perspectives. I don't like isms. I don't subscribe to isms. I don't like to box myself into a label. Um, there are a lot of people who are going to be there that I have a lot in common with. There are going to be a lot of people there that I have a lot of disagreements with. I welcome all of that. Um, I'm there uh, solely. I'm there for two reasons, to represent TNT Radio and to provide them with, uh, you know, some broadcasting segments from the event and talk to some really cool people and provide our listeners with uh, kind of a, a behind the scenes peek into what's going on at Freedom Fest. And I'm there to, uh, you know, try to garner support for Julian Assange and the future of press freedom. Um, so I, I am very much looking forward to it. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting people that are going to be there that are going to be speaking. Uh, and I can't wait. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it will be fun. And in Vegas, especially since weed's legal, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I expect <laughs> it will smell somewhat redolent. Yeah, people hanging on the lobby. We'll see, but and it's Vegas, so everything's legal, right? Basically, yeah, yes. It'll be my first time in Vegas too, so that'll also be interesting. Really? Yep. It's not really. And I've never really had a desire to go to Vegas. I don't gamble. Um, I, you know, I'm. I, I crowds kind of freak me out a bit, so it's never been something that I've ever like. Oh, I really want to go to Vegas. Um, I'm excited to go to Vegas. I think it's one of those bucket list things you can check off. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and mostly, honestly, Lee, I'm just going to be working most of the time. Uh, there's not going to be a lot of time. I mean, the the event lasts pretty much all day long. I'll be broadcasting multiple times a day. Um, so uh, you know, I, it'll be difficult for me to uh, find time to do much of anything else. Uh, but hopefully I'll, I have some friends that live there. Hopefully they'll be able to show me some sites and things like that. Hopefully I'll find some time for that. But when, when you're at an event like that at a convention, sitting around in a lobby while other people are smoking weed is considered working. You see what I'm saying? You're on the, you're on the <laughs> That's clock. True. So That's true. It's nice work. Fair enough. And tell us where people can find your broadcast from Vegas and Freedom Invest. So um, TNT Radio, you can find at tntradio.live. Uh, they also have an app that you can download from the App Store. Um, you can find it on Podbean and uh, different podcasting apps um, uh, or platforms. Um, so, But tntradio.live is the easiest place you can go there, and then they have links to all of the different uh, various ways that you can tune in and listen in. Uh, they have a lot of really interesting hosts and presenters uh, in the lineup, uh, and they're relatively new. I think they've maybe been around for about a year-ish. Um, so they're really still trying to get their bearings and find their footing. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's a really, it, there's no censorship, which is the, which is the thing that's that we need more of that. Yes, th that is a thing. And so, uh, tell people how they can find you on Twitter. Let's talk about that. Um, and by the way, have fun, have fun. <laughs> yeah, Twitter is, uh, uh, I, I'm a prolific Twitterer. <laughs> I tweet a lot, mostly Indeed. about Julian Assange uh, and other political prisoners. Um, I'm constantly on there trying to reach out to people, garner, or, you know, try to get people involved or post information. Because in the Assange situation, we are uh, really dealing with a massive media blackout. It's really difficult to get information out, uh, legitimate information out about Julian Assange and what's happening to him. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Sarcasm Stardust. 
I am again there all the time. Um, uh, and you can tweet at me. Uh, I'm, uh, if you are interested in following the Julian Assange situation, I tweet about that all the time, constantly giving updates and offering ways that people can get involved, different calls to actions, things like that. Um, and not just Julian Assange. Um, I mean, my work as an activist focuses, um, uh, most specifically on press freedom and free speech, but also anti-imperialism and other, uh, political prisoners, Leonard Peltier and Daniel Hale and, you know, all of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, again, I'm on Twitter a lot, so there's plenty there. <laughs> there's plenty there for and sure. And did you ever think that being an advocate for press freedom and freedom of speech would get you called a Russian bot? <laughs> My favorite, Lee, is when they call me a fascist. I'm like, I, I don't think you know what that word means. Fascists are not big fans of free speech, my friends. That's just not a thing that they're into. Um, but yes, I it's the the Russian bot thing. And my uh, as Lee kind of alluded to earlier, my Twitter name is Comrade Misty is Putin's buddy. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, during the 2015-2016 election cycle, I was incredibly anti-Hillary, as anybody with a brain should be. Uh, she's a horrible person. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there was the whole during that time, if you uh, if you spoke against Hillary Clinton, then you were, you know, an agent of Russia. You were Putin's, you know, uh, puppet or whatever. Um, and Jimmy Dore, who I am a fan of and friends uh, with, uh, went to uh, Oslo and <laughs> uh, Gary, oh, what's his name? Gary Casper. I don't even remember his name. Some chess guy. Casper. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yes. Uh, got mad at Jimmy Dore and started yelling at him and calling him, you are Putin's buddy. And it just it made me laugh. And so I changed my handle to that. Um, and then over the course of the past six years or so, uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've been called a Russian. I live in Ohio. I'm born and bred in Ohio. I've never been to Russia. I don't think I even know any Russians um, uh, personally. Your, your Russian so. accent is horrible. I don't it want is to really be paranoid, but it's horrible. <laughs> I got to work on that. Vlad's going to be mad at me. Uh, but yes, uh, I'm not a Russian, but uh, the, and it just kind of stuck. Um, I, for very briefly, when we uh, attempted a coup, another coup in Venezuela, I changed it to Comrade Misty is Maduro's amiga. Um, but, it, you know, we went back to hating Putin again, so I switched back to Putin. Um, and it just kind of stuck. It's just kind of become, you know, uh, like a bit or a shtick or whatever. Uh, and it just makes me laugh because, again, I am some chick from Ohio. I'm not Russian. <laughs> now, let me ask you this, too, because I, I, I don't know the answer, but I bet I know the answer. I'm not going to actually bet anything, but I, I surmise that since you were called a Putin puppet, and you took that name. Here's a question. Have you had a chance to look into Vladimir Putin more? Yes. And when you did, did you actually find you kind of liked him? Um, well, that's a difficult question for me to answer because I think that uh, you don't reach a, a, a position at that level of power without being kind of a psychopath. Um, uh, it doesn't matter who you are, what country you're representing. I think every the, the people in positions of power get there for a reason. Um, so uh, it, it, in terms of that, I don't I don't really like any of them. Um, but relatively speaking, yes, uh, I definitely think that he is um, certainly not what he is being portrayed to be. I think he's been, especially over the past eight years, has been incredibly patient, uh, very straightforward about his position and his intentions, uh, which is rare, I think, uh, for a world leader. I think. Uh, 
frankly, he's handled the situation with Ukraine uh, fairly well, uh, uh, given the circumstances, and he has uh, kind of weathered the storm of the ire of empire fairly well. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm like a actual fan of Putin, um, but relative to other world leaders, I would say, yeah, he's probably up there with, you know, one of the least repulsive. And it's, it's ironic because, of course, it, had you never been called a Putin puppet, you probably wouldn't have looked into him as deeply as you have ended up. You, you know That's probably fair. Saying? Yeah. Yeah, but that's probably fair. Yeah. I mean, I knew uh, I knew a bit about him before, um, uh, just based on my interest in, uh, you know, uh, anti-war, anti-imperialism, geopolitical events, all of that stuff. So I knew a bit about him before, um, but I think it's probably fair to say that I wouldn't have uh, looked so extensively into him as a person, as a leader, um, if I wouldn't have been maligned as a Russian agent for years. <laughs> you know, there were days that it was nope. dozens of times a day I was being called a Russian. And so, yeah, that certainly made me take a little bit of a deeper look. It, it, it's, it's the irony of it. Now, now, Misty, uh, let's talk about Ukraine for a second. And let's talk about the wider implications. And let's get the first clip going. Here's the clip. Rod, what is this first clip? Set this up for us. This is the first one about the, the, the world order. This is a clip of Brian Dees being asked about, uh, you know, why American suffrage. And then he uh, he's going to reference the liberal world order. Yes. And we'll talk about that liberal world order thing, because Janice Yellen, our secretary of Treasury, recently said that the war in Ukraine is about the liberal world order. And they uh, uh, but let's hear this clip. Take it. What do you say to those families who say, listen, we can't afford to pay four eighty five a gallon for months, if not years. This is just not sustainable. Well, what you heard from the president today was a clear articulation of the stakes. This is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. Oy. Now, yeah, no. So what's your what's your reaction to that, Misty? Um, <laughs> uh, disgust, revulsion. Uh, it's it, it's a very it's weird. It's a very weird thing that these uh, these people have just decided that they're the arbiters of what is the liberal world world order, and uh, that we should all be. Uh, you know, kind of forced under whatever that ideal is. Um, and it's, uh, you know, hey, sorry, you have to pay for this NATO expansion, uh, the poking of Putin, uh, because let's make no mistake about this. This is they've been trying to portray this as Putin's war. It's Putin's invasion. It's Putin's, uh, you know, inflation. It's Putin's price hike. It's Putin's gas prices. That's not true at all. This is Joe Biden and NATO and not really Joe Biden, because let's be clear, he's not making any decisions. Uh, but this is a NATO thing. This is, uh, as I said earlier, when we were talking about Putin. Um, this has been going on for a very long time. And uh, Vladimir Putin, in my opinion, has been incredibly patient over the past eight years. He's been very explicit about, um, you know, what his intentions were and what his, uh, you know, requests were. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is definitely something that we have initiated. Um, and so we own this. And by we, I mean our, you know, uh, ruling class or whatever you want to call them. Um, so, yeah, this whole liberal world world order thing, nobody asked for that. You don't... And, I don't think that anybody should trust these people who are known liars and warmongers and criminals um, to get to decide what that world order is and uh, how it's enforced. Um, so, yeah, that's it's a very interesting time that we live in that this is being tossed about as if this is just sorry, you have to, uh, you know, make sacrifices in order to further our agenda. But if a guy in a MAGA hat 
had called them the liberal world order, he would be called a paranoid right-wing nutjob. Yes. And this is a guy who's in the liberal new world order saying that's what this is a defense of after Janet Yellen had said that. Now, speaking of those price hikes, let's play the second clip, shall we? Ultimately, the reason why gas prices are up is because of Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. The reason why the food crisis exists is because of Russia. Russia not allowing grain to get out of Ukraine. <laughs> now, you surely heard the phrase Russia, Russia, Russia before. It's based yeah. on a Brady Bunch episode where she was talking Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Mm-hmm. So you've heard the phrase Russia, Russia, Russia. You just heard the president of the United States use that phrase, not in derision, not mocking anybody, but saying what he believes. That the price hike are Russia, Russia, Russia. Have we gotten That's to a crazy. weird point? Well, right. <laughs> where where self-parody is reality? Yes. That's exactly what it is. It's astonishing. You know, people joke that, you know, this is we live in the worst timeline. It's un, it's it is kind of unbelievable that we have reached that level of like self-parody. You know, it's uh, you have Joe, Russia, Russia, Russia. I mean, he literally just said it out loud. Right. Uh, that's a well-known meme. That's a well-known thing that people make fun of and mock that, uh, you know, everything is blamed on Russia. It's kind of like the thanks Obama thing that was that going on years ago. Um, and it's it, now that we it, it, no, Joe, Joe Biden's out there really just saying it out loud. And I feel like as if he's saying I think that if the, they believe that if they just repeat it enough, um, that it will become the truth because that is historically accurate. That's how propaganda gets uh, kind of turned into truth. Um, and so, uh, but it is funny that they are using literal internet memes uh, to kind of push <laughs> push their talking points. It's a very interesting time and for sure. Literal internet memes as their policy. Their policy, yeah. they just look to their new policy is going to be Pedro the Frog. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they just yeah. look to internet memes. That's our immigration policy, Pedro the Frog. Oh. Why not? I know. I know. And these are the people who are leading, uh, supposedly. I mean, listen, again, I need to make it very clear. Joe Biden's not leading anything. I don't think he even knows what's happening around him at any given moment. Um, uh, and I don't think that anything could make it more clear that it really doesn't matter who the president is uh, it, than the selection of Joe Biden. Um, he's not making any decisions. He's just saying the things that he's been told to say um, and that he's heard repeated. I mean, they had to give him instructions on how to take a seat, right? Like they had to write it down for him. Take your seat. <laughs> your seat. Uh, he has to have things very much explained to him. Um, but yeah, it is, it's, um, it's bizarre that we live in this time now where, uh, and and it's so obvious that they're really just kind of doing it out in the open. Now they're not really even hiding it. Um, and it's all, all, a lot of this stuff is meant to be divisionary. It is just meant to be, um, you know, a, a wedge in between, uh, the American people. They want us fighting amongst ourselves so that we're not taking a look at the man behind the curtain. Um, and so that's, I think a lot of that is, uh, is what's going on here. But one thing I've noticed about the liberal war order, uh, and it doesn't make any difference to a political party they're in, because I would say Mike Pompeo is an advocate for the liberal war order. They're using the word liberal in a broad sense. Mm-hmm. The liberal war order does not like Julian Assange. Have you noticed that? 
Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, well, listen, powerful people don't like having their secrets exposed. I don't think anybody would be surprised by that. Uh, and that's what Julian Assange does. He exposes powerful people and not just powerful people of uh, one party, which, as we mentioned earlier, that when he was exposing Republicans, Democrats seem to really like him. Now that he's exposed Democrats, Republicans seem to be coming around on Julian Assange. Um, but he's it's a really a postpartisan thing for him. And it's not just in the United States. He exposes uh, governments around the globe, corporations around the globe. Um, and that's, uh, I think that there's, uh, if, if you want to see, uh, you know, uh, the, the supposed two sides of the aisle come together, this is a great issue for them to do it because they all hate him. They all want him silenced because uh, he doesn't play favorites. He doesn't, there. he doesn't have a team um, and he will expose all of them. And I think that that's, and really it's about making an example of him at this point. Um, they want to use him as the warning to everybody else uh, to cause a chilling effect across journalism, uh, across whistleblowing. Uh, I think that they've unfortunately already been very effective in making that point. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think that they both uh, desperately want to silence him because he does such a fantastic job of exposing them. Now, we talked about what happened on the left with Assange, but what happened on the right? And I don't know if you're watching the early days of QAnon, but probably not, I assume, right? Mm, not really, no. No, good for you. There's no reason you should have been. <laughs> Unless yeah. <laughs> you're on the right, and I'm on the right. But the early days of QAnon, one of the first things they did was they started making predictions about Assange. Mm -hmm. In the early days of QAnon, they said, QAnon was saying, how do you know Assange is even held prisoner? Do you remember <laughs> yeah. any of that insanity? Yes, I do. I also remember them saying that Donald Trump was going to protect him. Donald Trump was going to save him. Donald Trump's who had him arrested. Um, Donald Trump is who failed to pardon him. Uh, so, yeah, I do no, remember right. a lot of that stuff. And I think one of the goals of QAnon early on was to take away support from Republicans who were inclined yes. to like Julian Assange. Yes. And they and not just take away support. I think not just take away yeah. support, but to 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 dampen down any actual action, uh, because the right is very active yes. to their credit. Uh, they they actually do things. They get engaged. They get in the streets. They do the things that need to be done in order to get things done, which is why I'm happy to have them as allies in this cause. Um, but I think that that's a big part of what Q was meant to do was get them complacent. Oh, well, it's taken care of. We don't have to do anything. Donald Trump's going to take care of it all. It's going to be fine. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I think that was incredibly effective. And still is to some extent. Um, I think that, it, you know, for the past four years or so, four or five years, uh, it, re it really has done a significant amount of damage to the cause of freeing Julian Assange uh, by just making people no. very complacent and thinking that they don't have to be active in this cause. No, I agree with that 100%, Missy. And I think part of the reason it was effective is because the, the people who were affected by it don't even know that they were affected by it. I, I right. Talk to people sometimes. I say, "Well, it's what you just said. QAnon took away support for Assange, and they said no. Q liked Assange. If you you heard that from people, they're not even yes. aware that it was being because Q didn't come out and say, I, I hate Assange. Don't support him.' Right. 
That's what was so nefarious about it is it was more covert. It was more, yeah, we totally support Assange, but here's why we don't have to worry about it. You know what I mean? It, it, so it gave the illusion of support without any actual action to back it up, um, which I think was uh, really devastating, frankly, to the movement uh, to free Assange. Because as we've talked about, uh, you know, the people on the right were very receptive to being engaged and involved in this fight. Uh, and a, a significant percentage of those people uh, really just, you know, kind of got de deactivated, demotivated uh, to really do anything. And it was, I think it was because the way that they presented it, uh, yes, we absolutely support Julian Assange, um, but here's why we don't need to do anything. And I think that that was really uh, kind of a double whammy there. Yes, no, I, I agree with you completely. And uh, now you said you, you, you always hated Hillary. How did you, when did you start hating Hillary? Oh, from like uh, the minute I knew of her existence, really, the moment I got engaged in politics, I've never liked the Clintons. I've always found them to be incredibly uh, corrupt and very entitled um, and uh, really, uh, I mean, it psychopathy. <laughs> you know what I mean? That word comes to mind. It, it really, and I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not diagnosing anybody, but there really is just this level of arrogance and entitlement and corruption um, and this, you know, kind of behavior as if they're above the law, um, which I mean, so far, let's be honest, they have been. Um, and so I have never been a fan of Hillary Clinton. Uh, I've never been a fan of Bill Clinton. I've always had, uh, you know, it, I, I'm somebody that likes to trust my gut and I have a pretty good radar on people, um, generally speaking. And they, I just had an instantaneous dislike for the both of them. No, I've talked before about how when I wrote for Huffington Post and was a Democrat, I was an Obama supporter largely because I hated Hillary. And Obama yeah. was the thing stopping Hillary in 2008. And so I said, okay. And then I was incredibly disappointed early on by Obama. And yes. then I was a Trump supporter because I hated Hillary. So I think <laughs> yeah. I'm very I consistent. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I um, I did not vote for Trump. I was not ever going to vote for Trump. Uh, he's, you know, not somebody that I trust or think is a good. I think he's, you know, in it for himself. I think it's very clear that he is an opportunist, has been his whole life. Um, uh, so I didn't vote for Trump, uh, but I certainly was not going to vote for Hillary either. There was, no, I mean, she could run against Satan himself and I still wouldn't vote for her. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I voted for Barack Obama in 2008 as well. I hate myself for it now. Uh, part of the reason why I voted for him was because of Hillary Clinton. I've never been much into electoral politics. I've never really felt like in this completely corrupted system that we have, that it's really going but to be an effective well, change maker. But let me make you feel better. You voted for Obama, but looking back, is there any possible way if you could go back in time, you would change your vote to John McCain? Absolutely not. No, but I would have voted third party probably. I would have liked to have voted. For, I voted green uh, in 2012, 2016. Um, I didn't vote in 2020. Um, uh, so yeah, I would. I would just like. I, I yeah. I definitely uh, hate myself for voting for Barack Obama. But no, I was not going to vote for John McCain either. That's not a thing that's going to happen. <laughs> You're not kicking no. yourself for that. Now tell people again. We're out of time, Missy. Great appearance. Love to be back in the show. Uh, follow you on Twitter. You know and. Uh, great appearance. Okay, Misty Winston, we're out of time. Thanks to Meathead. Thanks to Misty. Cook those ribs, everyone. See you Tuesday on The Backstory. Backstory.